Thank you, Grace, for your helping us in worship this morning. It's, I've been gone for two weeks, missed two uh, Sundays with you, uh, been able to hear one of the messages, last Sunday's message so far, and uh, just good to be back and worshiping with you. We, it was okay to worship you online, worship with you online, but it's not quite the same. I will give you, if I may, just a word of comfort as we begin. I, I have my clock right here uh, on the podium, um, so uh, no panics, and I will try to look at it sometime during this morning. I appreciate uh, Dave. He, he uh, uh, I think one of the strong suits he has is he, he sees the big picture. He all, he's always seeing the synthesis. Uh, you know, sometimes we can, uh, I'm, I'm prone to, you know, you know, they talk about seeing the trees, not seeing the forest for the trees. Sometimes I don't see the trees for the leaves. <laughs> and uh, so it's great to have the balance of, of, of David, who likes to uh, see the big picture and weave it all together. So good to be back. We're continuing. We're picking up again in John chapter 13. And uh, we're in a, we're, we've begun a section starting in chapter 13 that is um, holy ground. Uh, we, 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 we think about these chapters uh, every year when we have our Passover Seder, that, 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 that re-demonstrating uh, the, the last supper of our, of our Savior and, and the time with his disciples. We often don't spend as, uh, much time developing the teaching or what's called the upper room discourse of our Savior. But we are going to be doing that now. And, and yet, and to me, these are so precious. Maybe in your life you can think of someone that you, that's now gone on with the Lord or, or a friend who didn't know the Lord. But as you think about them, sometimes what you think about might be, what were the, what were the last time we communicated? What were those last words? Well, these are our Lord giving these last words to his disciples. Within a matter of hours, he'll have gone through these brutal trials and torture, and he will be on a cross dying. And how he wants to prepare them for that and what will follow. And so it's in that heart, that's again what makes this so sacred, is our Lord shares his heart with his disciples. Uh, to lay the foundation, our text this morning will be John chapter 13, verses 31 to 38. But, but let's go back for the sake of context and start at verse um, 21. So I'm going to read from John 13, 21 to verse 38, the end of chapter 13. When Jesus said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was, leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter, therefore, motioned to him to ask him who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, Buy those things we need for the feast, or 
that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You shall seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. The text begins with the words, so when he had gone out. It's verse 31. That's speaking of Judas. Jesus had given him the bread to Mark, to John, and thus to Peter, who the traitor was. And then we're told, and, and Satan entered him. Verse 30 describes that having received the piece of bread, he went out and immediately it was night. So not only did he have the dismissal from the Lord, though Satan had already, we talked about, put into his mind the thought of of betrayal, now Satan comes and takes possession of Judas. And so, indwelt by Satan, he went out, and and, and John tells us, and it was night. That isn't simply, I don't think, a, uh, a time marker. And we've said this before, that uh, you notice the theme light is, is, is often in the Gospel of John. When Nicodemus came, it was night. And he came in the night of his soul and, and, and is searching out for the Messiah. But Judas leaves the light of God, the light of God's presence, the fellowship of the saints. He departs from that and goes out into night. He was in spiritual darkness. And so John emphasizes that for a reason. The, the, last, the rest of the Last Supper and the Upper Room Discourse is just Jesus and the elect, the believing, the cleansed disciples. Remember when he washed feet, um, he said, you're clean, but not all of you, speaking of Judas. And so he's saying, I'm washing your feet. You don't need a bath because you've been cleansed. You just need the the temporal daily cleansing of uh, dealing with sin. But, but all of you have been clean, speaking of their Titus 3.5, the washing of regeneration, but not all of you. And so all along, back in John chapter 6, Jesus had said, one of you is a devil, Judas. Now he says, one of you is, has not been cleansed in regeneration, Judas. But now Judas leaves 
I'm not going to ask for any names or anything, but have you ever been in a situation where uh, someone leaves the room and, and, and all of a sudden it just feels better? There's a, maybe someone that, that had kind of a heavy influence, you know, especially maybe if you're with a bunch of believers and there's a, there's a cynical unbeliever there. When they leave, it kind of lifts the spirit. Or maybe someone that's just prone to be negative and critical or hostile and they, they leave and there's just a, ah, peace. I don't know how much the disciples would have noticed that. Remember, they never got a, had a clue that Judas was the traitor. But, but it's when Judas leaves that now Jesus can, can start speaking to only believers and share his heart with freedom. And while he is giving this discourse, Judas is making his way to betray Jesus. And amazingly, how he will do it, is he'll, he know, he'll say... I know where Jesus will go after the Lord's Supper. He'll go to pray. And I know his favorite prayer, place for prayer will find him there for arresting. But as he steps out, now Jesus can, can be of, of one heart and mind with the believers that he has been raising up. As Judas left, Jesus can speak freely, directly, purposefully to the believers, his disciples. And so Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. That word is glorified in the, in the Greek text is actually in the past tense. Uh, you could translate that was glorified or has been glorified. I won't spend a lot of time talking about the various options of how that, what that can mean, but I think the clearest meaning is, what he's saying is, it is now so certain the cross is so certain. He's, he's speaking it as, as if it's already done. It's a done deal. You've heard that expression. It's a done deal. Well, is it a done deal? No, actually it hasn't been, a, but it's as good as done. You know, it's maybe you're watching a baseball game and someone hits the ball and it goes flying, clearly going to arc over the defense. And so announces, that's it. That's the end of the game. Not necessarily. A seagull could fly by. The bird... The ball hit the ball. The ball dropped down. And next thing you know, all the judges are out there trying to figure out, what do we do with this situation? But, but for all intents and purposes, it's done. Maybe you're watching a bowling game and someone you know, throws down the ball and, and you can just see by the clean strip, that's going to be a strike. Or a golf. You know, it's, now, here's one of the bad things. It might be golf. And you've seen those. those they, they love to show those replays. There goes the ball, and it kind of circles the little hole for 40, 50 minutes, it seems, and then comes out again. <laughs> so all, but all this, say, when he says, it's done, I'm, I'm glorified now, with Judas' departure, now we are only God's people. With Judas' departure, that's the match lit to the fuse that will not go out. It's begun. It's as good as over. It's a done deal. It's settled. Now, the Son is glorified. And he's speaking there of the cross. Now the Son of Man is glorified. Speaking of the cross. Sometimes we have a hard time grasping the significance of the cross. So often it, it, it's something of beauty. It's a, it's a piece of art. It's a piece of jewelry. I remember one time 
being in a church, and it was, I guess, the Lenten season when it's kind of a time of self-denial, and they, and they, and they covered up uh, everything that was beautiful. And so they put a, a black cloth over the cross, and I thought, something's wrong here. The cross, the, the one on the wall was truly a, a beautiful one. The cross is beautiful because of its ugliness. To the Roman world, the cross was brutal, it was painful, it was horrific, it was shameful. Uh, Again, we've said that a Roman citizen could not be crucified because that would dishonor the Roman Empire. The whole point of the cross was not only brutality and punishment and execution, it was shame. We will shame those who think they can stand up against Caesar and the empire. And so to think of the cross and glory in the same thought is, is, is like the grinding of gears. It, it's, those two don't go together. Which is, we're, we're stunned by the thought. Glory in the cross? Why could Christ call the cross glory? And sometimes, you know, we know as we think, I'm going to go through a terrible time of agony, but when I get to the other side, there's the glory. No, he's saying that agony is the glory. That shame is the glory. That suffering is the glory. And frankly, not just the suffering of Rome's punishment, but the suffering of the Father's wrath. How, is, how, is, how, how does the cross glorify Christ? Well, for one thing, and supremely, perhaps, it, it accomplishes his purpose of redemption. No cross, no salvation. Remember one of the, the, the mockeries that was, uh, that was thrown at Christ on the cross? Well, if he's, if he's the Messiah, why doesn't he just come off that cross and save himself? Well, if he came off that cross, yes, he could have, with the help of 10,000 angels. But if he had done that, then he would have failed his mission, and he wouldn't be the Messiah. The cross is the accomplishment of God's purpose of redemption. It glorifies Christ by accomplishing that great redemption. It glorifies Christ by showing his heart of compassion. He did it willfully. He did it lovingly. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that's what he was doing. He was laying down his life for the sheep. It was an act of love. It was an act of compassion. But also throughout the gospel, hasn't Jesus been saying again and again, I say what the Father says, tells me to say. I do what the Father tells me to do. I have come not to do my will, but the will of the Father. Lord, if there is any other way we can accomplish it, but thy will be done. This is a glorious display of the submission of the Son. The cross is God's plan for glory. And again, I think if we were in that Roman culture, we could marinate in the reflection of how those two words don't go together. A glorious, 
cross. A couple of quotes I came across. It costs God, C.S. Lewis said this, it costs God nothing so far as we know to create nice things. But to convert rebellious wills cost him crucifixion. Erwin Lutzer, the purpose of the cross is to repair the irreparable. Irreparable. And Mr. Spurgeon has some thoughts on the cross. The cross of Christ is Christ's glory. Man seeks to win his glory by the sacrifice of others. Christ by the sacrifice of himself. Men seek to get crowns of gold. He sought a crown of thorns. Men think that glory lies in being exalted over others. Christ thought that his glory did lie in becoming a worm and no man. A scoff and reproach among all that beheld him. He stooped when he conquered. And he counted that the glory lay as much in the stooping as in the conquest. As the door closed, as Judas walked into the darkness, Jesus saw every step he would take and the words he would say and the plan uh, settled for his betrayal. Now, now is the Son of Man glorified. And he went on to say, and God is glorified in him. The Son is glorified in the cross, and the Father is glorified in the Son through the cross. We, we think about something, we use that expression of glorifying God, and yet we have to be clear on what we're thinking. To glorify God is not to make him more glorious. You can't. Some of you like math, and if I say, if you take infinity and add 15, what do you have? Infinity. You, you, you do not increase God's glory by glorifying him. Glorifying God is, is revealing, expressing, communicating, displaying his glory. And so the son displays the glory of God. Now, again, when we think of glory, often we think of the Shekinah glory, the, the brilliant light. And that's a, that's a physical manifestation of a character, but really God's glory is in who he is. We use the term sometimes his attributes, his character, as well as what he does, his, his actions. It was glorious scene when we see who he is and what he does, and the cross shows us who he is. He is sovereign over history. God orchestrated this event and planned this event throughout, throughout time. So that he was dying at the very moment of the sacrifice of the, of the Passover lamb. Right in that season. All of the events that brought this to pass. Whether it be uh, Caesar's declare of a decree that would, that would put him to be born in the right place at the right time. It's all been orchestrated by a sovereign God to bring him to this cross at this time. We see his, his power. We see his wisdom. We see his justice. 
Christ is dying in the human realm as an act of injustice. Pilate declared, there's no guilt in this man, and then he crucified him. But it is a display of God's justice. Man's guilt is real and cannot be just denied. And, and God would be, not be just if he just swept things under the carpet. That's one of our frustrations again and again in this, these days is criminals can do terrible things. And next thing you know, they're out on the street. We hear this again and again, some violent, terrible criminal. And they say, oh, he's got a, a, a record of, of, of crimes that is so long and he's never been punished. We say, where's the justice in that? God is just. He must condemn sin. And so he condemns our sin by putting it on his son. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And then he poured his wrath on the son as our substitute. It shows his justice. It shows his love. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amazing love and a display of his amazing grace there was, it's not because he saw something wonderful in us that was worthy of saving. You know, some, may, some person may go out and, and find an incredible gem or discovery. You, you ever watch that antique road show? I like to watch that. Two, two, two surprises happen in those shows. One is someone thinks they've got this glorious, one person, I've got a first edition signed by this author, very rare. And they looked at it and said, no. This is no first edition, and that's not the author's signature. This is worth about three ninety-five. It's just a it's just a beat-up paperback. And then there's the person. No, oh, this is in our family, and well, you have no idea. This is a one of a kind. This is worth tens of thousands of dollars. So someone maybe who watches shows like that, and they go out into an antique store, and they see, oh, I know what that is. They run to the bank. <laughs> I need more money. I need. I, I could buy that thing for thirty-five dollars, and it's worth thirty-five thousand. They're gonna. They're gonna spend their money to buy because they see value in it. It's not that God said, "Oh, they're so good, I'm gonna help them out." And God said, "They're so vile, they can't do it themselves. Guilty, vile, and helpless. We, spotless Lamb of God, was He? That's grace, undeserved, unmerited favor." So God is glorified in the Son at the cross. In verse 32, he says, If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him quickly or immediately. Here he's speaking of the coming resurrection and ascension. Yes, God will pour his wrath upon him. The darkness will fill the Jerusalem there in the brightest time of the day. The earth will quake, but quickly. In three days, resurrection. In 40 days, ascension into glory. Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Because of what he did, God highly exalts him. In John 17, verses 4 and 5, Jesus anticipates that in his prayer. 
In John 17, verses 4 and 5, I have glorified you on earth, Jesus prays to the Father. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And so we see the cross is is a display of the glory of Christ. And in Christ on the cross, the Father is glorified. And after the cross, Christ will be glorified with and by the Father, exalted in heaven, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Do we marvel at the cross? Do we wonder at the cross? Do we cherish the glory of Christ on the cross? Or is it such a common idea that we hardly consider it? There was a missionary, a veteran missionary to India who was a a great storyteller, and he would could vividly describe scenes and events from his 50-plus years in Asia. One day, someone asked him, what is the most difficult problem you ever faced? Sometimes that's a good question to ask someone, whether it be in missions, ministry, or just work. What's the hardest part of your job? Without hesitation, he answered, it was when my heart would grow cold before God. When that happened, I knew I was too busy. I knew it was time to get away, so I would take my Bible. I would go off to the hills alone. I'd open my Bible to Matthew 27, the story of the crucifixion. And I would wrap my arms around the cross. When is the last time we saw, saw, God's glory in the cross. Our Lord continues as he describes his, he speaks to his his disciples. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. He, he, he uses that expression, in a little while I'm going to be gone. You'll seek me. He said, I said this, the same thing I said to the Jews. He said this back in John chapter 7, verses 33 and 34. Jesus said to the Jews, by that we mean the Jewish leaders, the unbelieving Jewish leaders. He said to them, I will be with you a little while longer than I... I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. In chapter 8, verse 21, he had said to them, Jesus said to them again, I'm going away where you will seek me. And you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. (coughs) So twice he said to the Jewish unbelievers, where I'm going, you cannot come. You will seek me, you will not find me. And you cannot come where I'm going. Here's the sad part of the glory of the cross. 
for the glory of the cross to be accomplished, Jesus has to leave his disciples behind. I'm going. And where I'm going, you will not be able to find me. You cannot come. But I'll just notice something quickly. We'll come back to it a little bit. There's a difference between how Jesus said that to the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, and how he says it to the believing Jew, Peter. In verse 36, Jesus, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Again, notice what he said to the unbelieving Jews. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And he said, where I'm going away, you will die in your sin. You cannot come where I am going. But to Peter said, he cannot come now. But you will. You will go into the Father's presence as well. But while the Lord is leaving, and so again, I'm constantly in my mind, these are his final words. I wonder if the whole pilgrimage walk towards Jerusalem, if it wasn't in his mind, thinking how he could speak to, to his disciples' hearts in these last hours. Verses 33 and 35, he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, so that you also love one another. By this, all will know you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. A new commandment, he called it, a new commandment, to love one another. Well, a commandment to love is not really a new concept in the Bible. Uh, Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus is one of those books we say, oh, all oh, the sacrifices, all that. Leviticus doesn't really speak to us. Well, 19.18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's the one Jesus quotes and says, when he wants to speak about love, he quotes from Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love is a command to love is not new. It's right back there in Leviticus. Jesus described it too in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 to 40. One came to Jesus and said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's where he quotes Leviticus. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so I say, you understand all the requirement of the law? Love God, love your neighbor. There you have it. So what's he mean? I'm giving you a new commandment that you love one another. We're to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and we're to love our neighbor as yourself seems to me as, as, as I read this, what's new is not love, but the new standard of love. In, the, in, in biblical law, in the Old Testament, love your neighbor as you love yourself. But the new commandment, we're to love one another, speaking not just the, the generic neighbor out there, but fellow believers, those that were in that room. You know, Judas is not a part of this discussion you know, love one another as I have loved you. That's a whole nother measure. Christ gave himself, forsaking the manifestation of his glory, laid down his life. That's the standard of love. 
that we're to have towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul will, will, will say basically the same thing about the marriage love. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. That doesn't mean you go and buy her a gold cross. I'm not saying that's a bad idea. But it's not just buying gifts. It's laying down your life. Laying down your self-interest. <coughs> Paul brings that out in Philippians. Remember when he said in verses chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he describes that Christ's self-denial in coming to the cross. That's, that's to characterize our relationships in the church. So when we see the cross in church, we, we're to think of what Christ did for us, but it's also a reminder of what we're to do for one another. That's a costly love. The opposite of self-love. And there was instead of saying, well, I'll do for you as I would do for myself. That's kind of a self you know, that's, that doesn't go beyond myself. I'll use here a, a quote I hadn't seen before, but from Benjamin Franklin. He that falls in love with himself will have no rivals. Think on that one. <laughs> uh, someone has pointed out that the cross is the letter I crossed out. And when follow me, let him deny himself and take up the cross. You know, too often it's first my, you know, take care of myself and then I'll take care of you. No. Die to self. Deny yourself to serve the other. What's the standard of our love? Christ. Verse 35, he goes, he, he goes on to say, By this all will know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. Christ-like love between the brethren will be the mark, the evidence, the testimony that we are followers of Christ. Early church fathers recorded that. That, that was kind of a mockery from the Gentiles. They would, they would mock, see how they love one another. That was the mark of Christianity. Frankly, it's a lot easier putting a little fish on the back of your car. But even that can be kind of convicting, right? You know, you think, well, if I put a fish there, I have to drive in a way that reflects that. But you could wear a cross. You could wear a T-shirt. John 3.16 on the back. That's the easy part. That's all external. What Jesus is saying is, this is how you'll be marked out as my disciples. Your, your, your Christ-like love for one another. Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse sees three places in John where Jesus describes the mark of a Christian. In John 8.31, John 8.31, he says, Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. A mark of a true believer abiding in the word of Christ, a continuing in the word of Christ. First John, remember, John will say, how will you know the false believers? They went out from us because they were not of us, for if they'd been of us, they would have remained with us. 
the mark of a true believer is someone who abides in the word of Christ. So the person that tells you, I'm a Christian, but not like your kind of Christian. The God I worship, you can stop there and say, that's called idolatry. You're creating a God after your image instead of submitting to who God is. Who's a true follower of Christ who abides in his word? John 13, 35, 2nd Mark. By this all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. The love of the standard of Christ. And then John 15, 8, there's one other mark that Barnhouse points out. By this my Father is glorified, John 15, 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. A fruitless tree is not a living tree. And so he's saying one of the evidences of a genuine believer is bearing fruit. <clears throat> Francis Schaeffer made it easier. He said there's one, he, he wrote an essay called The Mark of the Christian and is built on John chapter 13, verses 33 to 35. I'll read some, some of his remarks in that essay. Uh, in John 13, the point w- was that if an individual Christian does not show love toward other true Christians, the world has a right to judge that he or she is not a Christian. You call yourself a Christian, they can say to you. You have no love for the brethren. You're a phony. And he's saying, the world has a right to do that if we don't show love for the brethren. Here Jesus is stating something else that is much more cutting, much more profound. We cannot expect the world to believe the Father sent the Son, that Jesus claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. There he's referring to what John says in chapter 17. He goes on, let me repeat, our love will not be perfect, but it must be substantial enough for the world to be able to observe it, or it does not fit into the structure of the verses in John 13 and 17. We've just come, we're in the season, I get me, hopefully it's over. You know, some of the seasons I don't like in our world are um, election season, and that seems almost now permanent. But, you know, here we go again. But another season in the summer is when all the, the denominations meet. And I so remember one fellow saying to me, oh, I love this time of year. To see all these denominations and churches fighting it out in public. That's what the world sees. Oh, see how they argue. See how they fight. See how they attack one another. And Jesus said, the, the world can judge whether or not you're a Christian based on your love for one another. How are we doing in that as a church? Because the church look at Terrell Bible Church and say, see how they love one another? What would that look like? What does that look like? I see some things that would, I think, point to that. You know, some of these, these evenings where we're gathering together just to love to be with one another. The poor guy every Sunday who's on, who's on lockup duty. They should, they're, they're going to start bringing a bag lunch because it takes so long to get everybody out of here. It's not a bad thing. I've been in churches where in 15 minutes the sanctuary can get cleared out and a new, new group rank come in. That's not quite how it works here. There's a love to be with one another, but there's a love to, that, that's more than just, well, no, it's great to get together. 
but to serve one another, care for one another, encouraging one another. I love to see that. Bearing one another's burdens. Challenging one another. Iron sharpening iron. The, may God deliver us and protect us from the idea of kind of the punch your ticket churchianity. I'll show up, make an appearance, got that in for this week. Now we're, we're to be loving one another as Christ loved the church. So as people are looking in at Terrell Bible Church, are they seeing that? Can they see that? Will they see that? What about our families, our marriages? For those of us who are, have the blessing of being in a two-believer marriage and a two-believer family, does the watching world say, see how they love one another? In case you've missed it, marriage is, is on the rocks in our society. It, it's, it's, it's a forgotten art. It's, 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 it's just kind of dying out in Europe. It's, it's a really dying out. But a lot of people are really wrestling with, um, how, do we, how do you do marriage? Well, especially when, when people are coming out of marriages that grow, grow, growing up in homes where you know, it was a disaster, and they walk away and say, well, I'm not doing that. That's, what I've learned about marriage is you don't want to do that. It's a mess. Honestly, that's where I was as a young person. One thing I know is marriage doesn't work. But people are looking around to see, does it work? Can it work? What did Christ say? We are to be a display of Christ's love for the church. Our neighbors should be able to look at our marriages, our families, and say, I now understand the love of Christ. How are we doing? What did, uh, was it Spurgeon? No, no, it was, uh, it was Schaefer that said, no, we're not, I, I, let me repeat, our love will not be perfect, but it must be substantial enough for the world to be able to observe it or it does not fit into the structure of the verses in John 13 and 17. The world should be able to see our love for one another. We'll finish off with Peter. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I will say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Some of you have been in a teaching situation in, in one context or another, and you've really laid out a good, so good thoughts. Maybe parent, you've given the, the perfect lecture to your children or whatever. Or maybe a teacher, I've gone through this, and you know, you've, you've laid this all out, and then they ask a question that's like out in left field. Why? What, what? So Jesus has just called us to a standard of love that is, that is challenging, that is glorious, that, is, that it's uplifting, and at the same time, uh, it, it causes aspiration and perspiration. The love like Christ. Where does P Peter land on that? Lord, how do we do that? What does that look like? No. 
What do you mean we can't go where you're going? <laughs> it's like he totally skips that part. He, once Jesus said we can't go where, where he's going, Peter didn't hear the rest of it. Lord, what do you mean? And, and, and you can see his concern. He said, I, I, where I, uh, when you say, I, 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 what do you mean I can't follow you? I'll lay my down my life for your sake. You say I can't follow you? Are you saying it's because I'm not good enough, faithful enough, uh, diligent enough? I'll, I'll lay down my life for you. That word lay down my life, that's the same language used in John 10. The good shepherd lays down his life. Peter's saying, I will sacrifice my life for you. And then Jesus says, answered him, will you lay down your life for me, for my sake? Now Jesus is about to lay down his life for Peter. Will you lay down your life for my sake? Before dawn, you'll have denied me three times. Jesus is not here trying to be brutal, unkind, harsh, but he's confronting him with the truth. Peter, you're counting on your own ability. You're counting on your courage. You're counting on, on your strength. And every time you do, you're going to fall flat on your face. You're going to lay down your life? No, you're not. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. One of the times we are most vulnerable is when we think we're not vulnerable. When we could look at some sin and say, I could never fall into that. I could never do this. That guy's a mess. I'm sure better than off than that. You are setting yourself up for a fall. Pride comes before destruction. Peter, and notice he's speaking for himself. Not, hey, he didn't put his arms around for a kumbaya moment and say, hey, we're going to stand with you, Jesus. He says, I won't forsake you. I won't leave you. I'll, I'll die for you. In hours, a little servant girl will say, aren't you with Jesus? No, no, I don't know him. And then at the coal fire at the end of the book, Peter, do you love me more than these? Because that's what you were saying in that upper room. And we see Peter humbled because he had a strong look into the mirror of his life and he saw his weakness. And he's a believer. He loves the Lord. But he didn't take full measure of his own weakness. And that's when we become vulnerable. We need to recognize there's a traitor in the camp. In my heart, there's sin. I ever have to be vigilant and watch that he doesn't take, uh, take a control of the steering wheel in a moment or for a season. And so in love, Jesus confronts Peter with reality. You die for me? Three times tonight, you'll deny me. You'll flee. And when I am suffering alone on that cross, you won't even be there. 
Some women will be there. And John will be there. But you'll be at a safe distance. That's not spoken. Those, that's, no, that, that's not communicated in bitterness. But it's, it's holding up a mirror and showing his reality. You're depending on your strength, and that's when you're weak. You should be on your knees and crying out, Oh, Lord, help us. Oh, Lord, help us. Have you come to that place in your life where you see your own sin? Where you recognize it's your sin that has separated you from God? It's been commented by many. When, when Jesus dismisses Judas, he doesn't expel him. He just says, do what you want to do. Go and do it. Judas is the one who left. It was his sin. It was his sin and guilt. Have you recognized your sin and guilt and come to Christ for forgiveness? Is that cross glorious to you because of what it took away from you? Do you love the Savior who, who did lay down his life for you? Have you trusted in him? If you have, then rejoice and glorify him. Is there, how, how are we doing on showing the evidence? Jesus says there is an observable test of the genuineness of our salvation. Schaefer says, we're not perfect. To which I would say, amen. But may God give us the grace in our church, in our home, in our marriages, to have an observable, manifest display of the love of Christ in our lives. That's impossible, except for the grace of God. And in the next chapters, in chapter 14 and 15, he's going to point us to the Holy Spirit. We need a helper. We need to depend on his grace and not make the mistake of a Peter saying, I can do this. I can do this. I don't want it to be my strength. I want his strength for his glory and in his way. Father, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for the love of a Savior who would so give himself to die, to share his heart. Lord, may we be renewed in seeing the glory of the cross. I pray in Jesus' name.